You're listening to the Library Pros Podcast with Chris and Bob, a techie librarian and a computer IT guy discussing libraries, technology, and all things this side of the reference desk. Thanks, Carl. Hi, and welcome to episode 21 of the Library Pros Podcast. I'm Chris, and my buddy Bob is lost in space. I think he's out trying to save a server somewhere, but he's not here this evening. So, Bob, where are you, Bob? So today, we're coming to you again from the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York. If this is your first time listening, thanks again for coming. Uh, the Library Pros podcast is produced bi-monthly, so don't forget to check us out and subscribe to our RSS feed, iTunes, Android, email, and Google Play. Links and notes from today's podcast can be found on our website, thelibrarypros.com, on Twitter at, at thelibrarypros, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash thelibrarypros. Today, joining us via FaceTime is Gina Millsap, the Chief Executive Order of the Order Officer. I always flub, so it happens at least once or twice a podcast. Today she we're having Gina Millsap, the Chief Executive Officer of the Topeka and Shawnee County Public Library, which was voted twenty sixteen Library of the Year by Library Journal. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks. It's great to be here. Welcome. uh, Hi from Kansas. That's excellent. We're going to speak to uh, Gina today about what it takes to be the 2016 Library of the Year. But first, let's talk about her background and how she came to be at Topeka and Shawnee County Public Library. That's a mouthful, huh? It is. It's a long name. Yeah. We're, you know, we're a consolidated library district. So, you know, politically, we have to include, we may have to make sure all the names are there. Ah, I see. So, where'd you grow up? You weren't. You didn't always live in Kansas, right? No, actually, I'm a Marine Corps brat. So I, I actually went to ten different schools between ten, kindergarten and high school because uh, my dad got transferred all the time, which was actually, in some ways, a really great way to grow up. Interestingly enough, though, what always made me feel at home in any community we moved to was the library because my parents always made sure from the time I could read that I got a library card and I went to the library. So, yeah, and then I've lived and worked in three different states I mean, as, a, as an adult. Uh, Columbia, Missouri, which is where I got my, my library degree. Mm-hmm. Um, and I worked there for, in the previous century. I mean, I'm telling you, I, I've been around a while. So, <laughs> uh, my, my degree's a bit of an antique at this point. Um, and then I moved to, after I worked at the Danube Regional Library for 20 years. Uh, I did a variety of jobs there, including IT, uh, and then became a library director at the Ames Public Library in Iowa, and then I've been here in Topeka for the last 12. That's a lot of territory. Yeah. Well, I kind of made a circle around the Midwest, though. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned your, your, your degree being an antique. It's still a usable antique, though. That's, that's the beauty of it, right? Oh, well, it absolutely is. I mean, and, you know... I. Not that education isn't important. It it absolutely is, and and I'm very proud of the fact that I have my master's. Actually, mine's a master of arts in library science. Um, But uh, at the end of the day, it's what you do with it, right? Absolutely. It's what you do with that education. That's true. And it has served me well. Oh, yeah. So where did you say you got your degree again? Columbia? University of Missouri, Columbia. Ah, Mm -hmm. Okay. Wow. Where is that in uh, Missouri? It's right in the middle of the state. About halfway between St. Louis and Kansas City on I seventy. Wow, it's that, a it's a great town, great university town, and um, just very progressive. And um, it was a great place. We moved there when I was thirteen, and I was there until uh, two thousand five. Yeah, so 
Or actually, no, not, 90, 1996 actually is when, when we moved. So it was a it was a great place to go to high school and college and become an adult. So uh, what drew, I know you said your dad and, and your, your folks are very uh, into bringing you to the library, but what really drove you to work in a library after college or consider it as a career? Actually, um, I was a junior in college. I was a biology major. And I was, I still remember this, I was sitting in my intro to genetics class. Uh, it was the semester I was taking genetics and biology and organic chemistry. And it was me and a, just a ton of pre-med students. So I knew I wasn't pre-med. And I just remember getting up from my intro to genetics class and saying, I'm kind of done with this. Um, and I literally walked over to Jesse Hall, which is the administrative office, and changed majors. Um, and the reason I changed to libraries was was my mother, because my mother, I, I was really struggling with, okay, what do I do now? Because I thought of myself as, I'm going to be a biology major, I'm going to be a scientist. And my mother said, but you've always been so into your English classes, and you're a voracious reader, you know, and you're passionate about literature and, you know, all those things. You know, what about, and you're, and you're always in libraries. What about libraries? So I did the Introduction to Library Science course. My part-time job was at Kmart, <laughs> and so, which is actually great training for, for customer service in libraries. But as soon as I could, you know, I had to do a practicum. So I did a practicum at the local public library, and I was totally hooked at that point. I couldn't wait. And, and the first job opening they had for a part-time library assistant, I applied for it. That was it. Wow, that's how you got the, the, the bug. Uh, you got bit by the bug, as it were. Mm-hmm. So then your first library job was over there then, right? Your first yeah. real true library job. Yeah, it was a library assistant for two years while I was getting my degree. And then I was really lucky because this was back like around 77, 78. And job market was really slow then. Yeah. I mean, I know, I know people think it's slow now too. But th that was the Carter recession era, right? Yeah, it, I mean, it was really slow. And the library that I was working in had not had a professional position open in probably about two years. So I, I lucked into one that was actually, it was the young adult specialist as well as a program coordinator. So that was my first job, which was like the funnest job ever. Sounds like it, especially mm -hmm. during that era. And that, that's a, a population that really wasn't served very well back in the 70s, right? It, it was just getting started. I mean, there weren't a lot of full-time like young adult librarians. And that was, I didn't do that full-time. I was actually, but I did programming and program coordination full-time. So I was doing kind of cradle to grave, right? Mm -hmm. So everything from early childhood, preschool story times, on up through uh, programming for older adults, which was, again, a wonderful way to start out your career. But I have a special fondness for teenagers, you know, adolescents, which not everybody does. No, and it takes so, a special kind of to actually be <laughs> It does. That, it yeah. does. And I'm still quite fond of them, bless their hearts. But I got, I, I, we started the first library-sponsored D&D group in the community, I think probably in mid-Missouri. And, and that was a real education because I knew nothing about role-playing games, you know, until I met these kids. And they said, well, we need a place to play. And I said, okay, well, let's start out like a club you know, which we did. And so it was just, it was a great way to really figure out what libraries needed to be for people in the community. Because those kids wanted to be at the library, but they wanted the library to meet their needs. And fortunately, I had a boss who was like, he just turned us loose. 
And as long as we were, you know, following the mission of the library and keeping him informed, we could we could try new things. That really is cool because those are the days of no and shush and, and all that other stuff. Although it was kind of interesting, there were a whole group of library directors that came up in the late 60s and 70s. Many of them didn't necessarily come up through the ranks. They actually started out as library directors, but a lot of them were very innovative and really believed in staff. And so they basically were interested in getting out of the buildings more. I mean, that's where you saw demonstration projects for all kinds of outreach services and bookmobile services and, and those kinds of things. Not that they actually, bookmobile services have been around, as far as I can tell, since maybe the 30s or 40s at least. Yeah, I've seen pictures from the 30s, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. But I, I think that's when libraries started to make pretty big investments in them, especially as an alternative to branches. So there was a lot of innovation going on in the, in the 60s and 70s. And that was also when LSCA money was available, Library Services and Construction Act. That began to dry up towards the end of the 70s. But when that was still available, there, were, there was a lot of cool stuff going on. That really is wild. And it's great mm-hmm. to hear this perspective because we don't usually have guests on that were in, <laughs> in the profession back back in those days. You mean old. Yes, no, no, mean. not at all. No, no I wasn't <laughs> no, saying I've been, that. I've been in the library business for 40 years. You know, I mean, I was I was 21 when I got my master's degree, you know, and that's other than working retail, you know, in mm-hmm. college. This is what I've done. And it, it's interesting to hear the perspective, too. I mean, it's always interesting when we when we interview people who are not from the New York metro area because mm-hmm. we love the different perspective. But your perspective and just by your experience is fascinating to me. We could talk for hours just about being a librarian in the 70s and 80s. Um, and I'm not going to say 60s because you probably weren't a librarian back then. No, no, I was, I was in grade school then. But, okay. but you know, but I... I started working in, my first job was in 1975 as a, li- as a library paraprofessional. Think about how much you've seen change. Oh, yeah, especially technology. Yeah. Um, and I was just, I mean, and the first system I ever ran was a CL, well, some people will know what this is, CLSI. used to be, you know, the market leader in ILS systems way back in the day. Um, and, and you know, literally the disk drives were the size of dishwashers. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I, I kind of remember that stuff. A little bit I remember that. But, yeah, it's it, – and what's amazing to me is that having all the experiences that you've had, you were able to make that technology jump. Well, I mean, to me it was – I mean, you could – University of Missouri, actually, the library school there at that time was a leader in, um, in really facilitating – uh, and assuming that librarians were going to need to know technology. And as a matter of fact, the first, I took a computer course that was a programming course mm-hmm. because the expectation at that time was that librarians were going to be writing the software that managed library operations. Now, that's amusing now, and I will tell you that the most sophisticated program I ever wrote just looped my name. So <laughs> there's, a, there's a big leap from that to a circulation system. That's all I'm saying. Oh, that's great. Tell me it was a Commodore 64. Please tell me it was a Commodore 64. Oh, no, it was a dumb terminal. It was punch cards. Oh, po- wow. <laughs> Commodore 64, that would have been like, you know. Like an iPhone. That's the yeah. future. <laughs> yeah. Wow, punch cards. That's, that's amazing. That's a great piece of history. So it sounds like everything that you've done has really shaped who you are today. 
I mean, oh, absolutely. I just had all these wonderful opportunities. You know, I mean, the first 20 years of my career, I spent in a library that I changed jobs every four or five years. You know, so I was a young adult librarian. I was a children's librarian. I was a program and events coordinator. I was head of reference. I ended up, I asked my director if he would, I wanted the computer. I wanted to to manage the technology because they hadn't had a librarian doing that. They had had somebody actually with more of a computer science background. And I said, I want to do that. And because I could see the potential of it. And so he said, okay, I'll give you the computer if you'll take circulation. That was the deal we had. <laughs> so I, I had to manage both departments, which actually, I mean, I realized Gene Martin was one of the smartest men I ever knew because that really helped me develop as a manager and a leader. They were two very different functions, operations with very different staff and customer bases, but it was so good for me because one of them, circulation, was totally outward facing and was really focused on the library's bread and butter, right? It was our stuff. And in a lot of ways, it's still our stuff. That's what people still primarily come to us for, along with tons of other other things. And then there was the whole that whole technology infrastructure that we were just beginning to build and see the potential for. And then that actually progressed into my library had was one of a group of founding partners of a community network called COIN, the Columbia Online Information Network. And we were actually the first ISP in the state of Missouri. And this was long before, you know, the telecom providers or anybody could really could figure out what to do with the Internet. Mm-hmm. And so we had we deployed modem pools over three counties. I managed technical and user support for several years. And these were people running Commodores with 300 and 1200 baud modems. Wow. But yeah, these were early adopters of, of online. And we were putting up, we were showing people what you could do. We ran Pine Mail. Um, <laughs> Good old there, Pine. There I was, remember Pine. Yeah, there was, you know, it was all text-based email, but, but showing people, you know, I mean, it was really exciting. One of my favorite customers was a guy named Mr. Belcher. He was in his 80s. He had a Commodore computer. He had a 1200 baud modem. And he was so thrilled because his son lived and worked in Japan. And back in that, in those days, Long-distance telephone calls were enormous, especially transatlantic or, or trans-Pacific, were enormously expensive. Sure. And so he could talk to his son all the time via email. You know. And what so year was he, this? This was this would have been early nineties. That, yeah, we that makes sense that. for Pine. Yeah. yeah. Was, so you're FTPing as opposed to right and, and, and gophering. Yeah, and gophering. Go oh God! Now know, I'm having flashbacks yeah. to to library school. Yeah, yeah. But that's, you know, before web, that's what we had, which was developed at the University of Minnesota. Yeah, because of the Golden Gophers. Uh Uh-huh. Yep. So I got to be on on the ground floor. You know, if if you weren't really with a university or an academic institution, you probably hadn't been exposed to that, certainly not in public libraries. But we, I got, I felt like I got in on the ground floor of Internet and the power of, of, of what you could, how you could build community online. Hmm. You didn't get it on the ground floor. You got it on the dirt floor. <laughs> you were yeah, there when they poured was, the cement. It, and it was so much fun. You know, our partners were the university and uh, uh, the Missouri Research and Education Network, which was part of campus computing, mm-hmm. um, the school district, the city, the county. Uh, and we were also working with these this pretty big group of independent telephone company owners who all you know ran relatively small businesses but were really innovators. You know, they were the first ones to bring cable television to their smaller markets. Mm-hmm. And so and they let us 
they were also providing, in some cases, telephone services, but they let us put modem pools, house modem pools in, in, in their locations. Uh, and then, uh, and so, because they were excited about providing essentially a free service internet mm-hmm. to their customers, and it was all dial-up at that point. Oh, sure. But um, it was it was just it was really exciting to see, as you saw, because we did a lot of dog and pony shows where we'd go out and dem- demonstrate what Coin was and what you could do online, because you could talk to you were blue in the face if people didn't get it. Hmm. But you started showing them what you could do, and it was just, you could just see the light bulbs go on. That's amazing stuff. Mm-hmm. So that's actually pretty funny to ask you the next question that I had planned. Uh, I was going to ask you what it takes to be a mover and a shaker, um, you know, because you're recognized by Library Journal as a mover and shaker. I think you answered that question just by everything you've done. But, but tell me what it was like to be uh, nominated as a mover and shaker. Well, I was very honored. Our our state librarian and the head of the Kansas Library Association at the time nominated, and I didn't even know they had done it, you know, which was very, it was very kind of them to do that. But actually, if you look at it, I'm kind of one of the older people. I think it's assumed that to be a mover and shaker, you have to be kind of on the younger side. But I think it's really more about being open to opportunities and and really understanding that Libraries should be cha- I've always believed that libraries should be change agents, that we should not be passive and we should not be reactive, that we can have enormous influence in our communities by virtue of what we are, the fact that we don't have to choose who we serve. I mean, to me, that, that, provi- that's such a great, that provides such a great sense of freedom. We serve everyone. And so, and our goal is simply to help being rooted in literacy and learning helping people make their own lives better, right? So they make the decision about what that looks like. But we've got great resources and tools to help make that happen. I think the only time I ever get down is if things aren't changing, if we're not growing. And, you know, it's, fun, it's funny that you mentioned that. And I'm sorry to cut you off. But some of the dirtiest language you can hear in a library is, well, that's how we've always done it. Or <laughs> yeah. I don't like change. I don't do change. And unfortunately, in our profession, that seems to be maybe not as much as it used to be, but that seems to be what happens in, in library land every now and then, where people get settled into where, they're, where they are and what they do, and they're afraid of change for the sake of change. Well, and so two things. First of all, I, I think you're right. I think our overall, our profession tends to be a bit risk-averse, and that may be by virtue of who's attracted to the profession based on the impressions, right, of what it means to work in a library. There's There's kind of... We kind of joke about this, but it's actually not funny in that if if somebody feels they want to come into the profession, they'll say, oh, well, I like to read. And it's like, well, great, but there's no time for that when you're working. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for saying Um, that. Or, you know, well, I like books. Well, good. I mean, lots of people like books, but that doesn't mean you'll make a great librarian. You know, do you have a passion for sharing books, for being a book evangelist, for it's because it's not about us, it's about them, right? It's for helping people find that key piece of information they need to find that wonderful story that's exactly what they need at the right time that helps them find the job. Whatever it is they need, it's being there for them. It's malleability. Um, You know, you have to adapt to, and a lot of people lose sight of this, what the patrons need is. Now, we shouldn't be, you know, I don't know, brushing their hair for them and and things like that. But, (laughs) you know, when they come in here and they have a question, 
you answer it to the best of your ability. We're researchers. We're not just people who read books. We're people who research, and we're people who have may not have to. We're jacks of all trade and masters of none. And that that was another thing as a public librarian that I, I mean I loved reference work when we were you know the the emperors of information. I mean we really aren't that anymore. When I did reference, I mean we had resources nobody else had. You know we were the ones that bought the thousand dollar world book because most families couldn't afford that. Mm-hmm. You know, and the reality is probably 50 to 80 percent of the reference work we did was ready reference. It was short answer stuff, right? You answered it with a directory or a dictionary or an almanac or an encyclopedia or, or some sort of specialized source. It, occasionally, you'd have to do something really fun and, and, and take a deep dive into something. But I think there's opportunities, a lot more opportunities to take those deep dives now, although I'm not convinced, at least on the public library side, that public librarians are actually being trained to do research. I, I'm not seeing that. I can't disagree with you on that. I can honestly say from the era that I I was kind of fortunate, I, at least I think, that I learned, well, I first, my first experience with research was in the fourth grade, and we had an amazing program in our elementary school that one year. But I was fortunate enough when I really got into, I, I, I like to say I had my feet in both worlds. In college, I had to go into the stacks, make copies, read articles, actually decipher them, wow. pull the pieces out, and the only digital service we had was InfoTrack. Oh, I remember. On Which CD. Was, yep. One CD, <laughs> and it never worked, and it was always a line. So he said, forget it. I'm just going to get the hand cancer and make a million copies. <laughs> and, and then as the, the 90s progressed, all of a sudden now there's these online databases, and you know, it's a little bit easier to search. And I always say that to, you know, especially teenagers now when they're doing their research, they're doing the amount of research that took me six months in six hours. Yeah between keyword searching and not having to print stuff out or make copies and highlight and realize you, you, you spend $3 copying this article and it's a complete dud. And the, the deciphering and dissemination of information has changed immeasurably from the time I was in elementary school, you know, junior high school, high school, college, you know, library school, the whole nine yards. It's changed so much to the point where I don't think, you know, the younger generation understands what it's like. You can just get this information but is it quality information? And I think that's what we became. We went from being the gatekeepers of information to being the disseminators of information. Yeah, I think actually we have a digital literacy initiative that we're working on right now. And I meet regularly with the superintendents of the school districts. We actually have six here, even though we're not that big of a, of a, a county. We have four larger ones and two small school districts. You know, and, and the discussions we're having, because I hear from my colleagues all the time, you know, at university libraries, freshmen coming in really aren't particularly good at evaluating, analyzing information, the quality of the information. And people have gotten pretty, they make a lot of assumptions. Okay, you Google something. It's on the first two page of hits, good enough, I'm done, right? Right. And unfortunately, the way that we market or don't market or make accessible, say, commercial databases, you know, which is data we're paying for, hopefully because it has good provenance and it's accurate and reliable. First of all, it's certainly not easy to use. The interfaces are all different. Yep. Uh, they're all kind of predicated on, it's not either a Google or an Amazon type experience. Right. I mean, God forbid and, you say, do you know how to Boolean search? You know, they look at you like, you know, you have three heads. And you know what? They shouldn't have to know that. Right. You know, I mean, the reality is Google bakes that in Mm -hmm. with, you know, and and has algorithms that are 
wouldn't we kill for those (laughs) (laughs) in our systems? Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, we can, we can, I think it's just important to understand what Google is and what it isn't. You know, I always tell people, I mean, I talk to more adults about this kind of stuff. As I said, realize what Google is. Google's a great tool. As a librarian, I love this tool, but let's think about this. You, we both like Mustangs. You like the car. I like the horse. Google knows that about us. It knows a lot of things about us. So the world that it begins to return back to you over time narrows and narrows. And it becomes a very unique, customized, commercial-driven, ad-driven worldview. Mm-hmm. Because Google's in the business of selling advertising. Gathering information and selling it. Mm-hmm. And so you just, it's kind of let the buyer beware. Realize that you're getting what you're getting because of what you've told Google about you. Yeah, Not because it's a neutral, totally objective search experience. Yeah, I agree 100%. And that's, that's a really good perspective because I think, at least when I'm using Google, you know, I'm, I'm exploring the different components of Google as opposed to just throwing a search in. You know, if you're doing mm-hmm. an academic where you're looking for scholarly journal articles, you go to Scholar. You know, there's different ways to search. You can limit to, you know, just new stuff within the last week, the last month, the last year. So there's a lot of tools that people don't even understand. Oh, it's amazing. I mean, all the things Google will do. I mean, I'm I'm not dissing Google at all. I mean, it amazes me that you can actually pose a question and get an answer. You know, I mean, and it's not even AI yet, but it's Mm -hmm. getting darn close. So I want to switch gears for a second and ask you one more question. Because, again, when you talk about what we like to call library land here on the podcast, Mm -hmm. there are a lot of people, librarians, library professionals, who come in, punch their card, do their job, and go home. Tell us why it's important to be involved beyond your job description with ALA or, like, here in New York with NILA or the Suffolk County County Library Association, you know, dealing with associations, dealing with that extra little bit and how it enhances your ability to be a librarian. So, yeah, it it seems so obvious in a way, doesn't it? But a a lot of our colleagues don't necessarily see the need for it. If you're working in one institution, you have a certain view, right? You have a certain view of our profession, of your community, and of the possibilities of how you can be better. Because you can, and you have to start with the assumption, we can always be better. We can always do better. We can always scale bigger and reach more people and have a greater impact. I think that's very hard to achieve if the only examples you have are yourself. That's a very, you are just, you're limiting yourself in ways. When you begin to build a professional network through professional associations, when you attend educational sessions that challenge you and introduce new ideas, and you're, you know, I just, I think about the times I've gone to the ALA conference and I've been sitting in basically what is the lecture and I've had an epiphany it's like holy crap this is a new way to do this you know I'm going to go home and do this and uh, you know one time I did that and when I was head of reference and completely redesigned our reference service and it it doesn't have to be that dramatic but I do I realize I've done environmental scanning my entire career I've always been looking both within our industry for our thought leaders and people that could teach me something by virtue of what they know or what they can do and then and 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 outside. And so it's always looking for that better way, that way to make a difference and wow people so that they begin to see the library as an essential community asset and as a as a community leader. 
that we should be at the table no matter what's being discussed. I mean, that's always been my goal, even when I was working um, in not informal leadership. My personal feeling is every single librarian should view him or herself as a community leader. And with that comes the responsibility of being engaged with your profession, with your professional associations, and to really know your community inside now. Well, that does make a lot of sense because if you're just dealing with the patrons from your district, it may be if somebody moves into the district that may be a little different, you have to figure out how to help that kind of person as well. Now, I know out by you, you're really spread out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, here, here where we are here on Long Island, you go every three or four miles and there's another library. So it's not necessarily the same kind of thing, but believe it or not, it is, too, because populations change from one community to another. Well, I would challenge you. Okay, from my perspective, you've got competition. How do you distinguish yourself in, you know, a place that has a bajillion libraries? It's true. You know, you know I mean, I mean to me, I, and I will confess I'm very competitive, too, <laughs> and I, I, think it, I think in a healthy way, but the thing is, I wanted my library to be Library of the Year. I wanted it for our staff, I wanted it for our board, and I wanted it for the community because I knew it would instill civic pride and a a sense of, you know what, we're doing great things here. But I want that for every library. And, you know, I've been kind of preaching this to people as I've been talking about Library of the Year. I firmly believe any library can be Library of the Year if they want it. And that's true. You need the vision. Mm-hmm. You know, so, you know, I guess my challenge to you is what distinguishes your library? Is everybody like really working at the top of their game? Are there are they looking at all the examples of the most innovative approaches to library service? Are you looking at your community and saying, how can we help solve the big problems in our community? You know, what can we contribute to that effort? How can we make this a better community to live and work and play? Exactly. Yeah. And, and a lot of libraries, they lose sight of that. They, they're more worried about, well, we have to order 30 copies of James Patterson's new book. And that's, that's not, that's, I'm not discounting that. I'm not saying that, you know, that's not something that shouldn't be done, but that shouldn't be the be all end all. It shouldn't be the A number one thing on your list. It should also be outreach. It should also be keeping up with technology. It should be teaching children how to do new and innovative things, teaching teens, reaching out to the 20 somethings reaching out, again, to the community, to seniors, and and really doing good things for the community. Oh, absolutely. Well, all those tasks we do, you know, the systems and the processes we have in place to be sure we're providing people what they need in a timely manner, we don't want people to have to wait weeks or months to get a bestseller, right? So we, we have to be systems thinkers, and we have to be constantly improving our processes. That's that's part of the job. But that's kind of a relatively low-level you know, place to be in terms of functioning. We also have to be working at that at higher level where we're thinking about, okay, so why are we doing this again? Exactly. Purpose. Yeah. Purpose, goal, mission statement, all that stuff. Right. But yeah. it's, it's like at the end of the day, you know, what is your mission? And at the end of the day, I look at mine every day and I say, did I do anything today to advance this mission? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Or was I sitting at my desk just answering email? You know, because that ain't getting it done. No, not at all. And it takes, it takes a, a real, you need to have a good leader in a library in order to be able to do these exciting, new, innovative, and service-oriented things for the community. You do, but it's, it's, to me, it's about sharing leadership and sharing power. So we've just expanded. We have a, a traditional, we call it the management council. 
um, that is our, you know, our formal leadership, our, our uh, directors, managers, and supervisors. But we've now invited our entire librarian cohort, um, which is about another 24 or 25 people, to be, uh, they're the non-supervisory librarians, to join us as we begin the work on this new strategic plan, because it's going to take all of us working together and leading together and being out in the community together at lots of different tables to really affect positive change on the scale that we want to do it. That makes a lot of sense. It really does. We could talk forever about this, but I, yes. really, I really want to move on and talk more about um, your library and all the different things you were doing. So okay. I'm going to take a short break, and when we come back, we are going to take a short break and come back and talk about what it took to become Library Journal Library of the Year and all the great things that you're doing uh, because we saw you as a keynote speaker at Computers and Libraries and I would really want to you know, give you an opportunity to, to list, give our listeners kind of an idea of what you've been doing with your bookmobiles and, and all the other innovative things that you've been up to. So we'll take a quick break and we will be right back. Hi, we're back with Gina Millsap, the Chief Executive Officer of the Topeka and Shawnee County Public Library. So we attended, like we said before, the, um, the library conference, Computers and Libraries, in March. And I know I was impressed with your presentation uh, as, you know, the first day keynote speaker. And that's where we learned about you and the work that you've done. Your presentation really was impressive, and programs that you featured in your presentation were also equally impressive, to say the least. Uh, tell us about the Topeka and Shawnee County Public Library and how many people have on your team? We are a staff of 200, a little 200. over 200. That's mm -hmm. impressive. We have, you know, well, we're, we serve a population base of 179,000. Mm -hmm. We're spread out over about, uh, about 550 square miles. So we go from a, an urban setting to a very rural setting. I live on a gravel road uh, out in the country. I'm jealous. <laughs> it's beautiful there on the eastern edge of the Flint Hills. The library itself is only a couple miles down the street from the state capitol. So, you know, it's, it's, Topeka is a pretty political place, mm -hmm. as most state capitals are. 
So, and we have no branches, which is pretty unusual for a library of our size. And that was a decision really that the community made when this building, the new building was built, which was uh, and opened in 2001. The library's been in the community for 150 years and started off on the state house grounds and then has been on this location since about the 50s, the 1950s. But this building was bonded for and built in the, uh, in the early 2000s. I think what also makes positions us to be effective in our community is we are very well funded. The budget's $17 million. And I probably didn't mention that in my presentation, but I should have. And another interest of mine is funding and governance models of public libraries. And we are a, an independent library district, which means that my board of trustees actually has taxing authority. And that makes an enormous difference because we control our financial present and future. Okay. So we're able to, and, and, and I'm not saying it's all about the money because I've also worked as a library director in, as a city like in a city library as a city department, which was another great experience. Um, and my mantra has always been money doesn't get to be the excuse. If you're committed to getting something done, then you get after it and, and you figure out a way to get the resources you need. And sometimes that's with public monies and sometimes it's with fundraising. But I, I feel we have enormous community support here uh, and a good funding and governance structure to really optimize library services. So you are an actual independent governmental agency, then you propose your own budget that puts up for a vote? Uh, yes, and actually the board does not have to go for a referendum to increase taxes. Okay. It's simply, it's, it's simply like a city council, say, or a commission, it, it sets a tax rate and, and then that translates into, uh, actually it sets the dollars and then that then translates into a tax rate. Big responsibilities, right? It, serving on the board here is considered a big deal because even though they're, they're appointed by elected officials, but because of the amount of uh, financial authority, uh, the, the mayor and city council and then the county commission who are our appointing authorities take the appointments to the board of trustees very seriously, uh, which we very much appreciate. Oh, yeah. You definitely need a board that's on board, on board mm -hmm. no pun intended, and, uh, you know, can actually be effective, too. Right. Yeah. So tell me, uh, how do you keep professional and support staff motivated every day when the doors open? You know, I remembered your presentation and you talked about good leadership facilitators, internal change and motivation. Tell us how you got the ball rolling with that and how, that, how do you keep that ball rolling with regard to morale and, and all that stuff? Well, so I guess I don't, I don't think we motivate people. I think people motivate themselves, right? My job is to provide to work with everyone to first of all have the shared vision where are we going you know if i don't know where we're going i i don't i can't do the map to get us there so that's part of my job as leader not to develop that unilaterally but to start with some good ideas and then to share them and have invite everyone else to help make them better so that's how i manage that's how i lead but having a plan that's very concrete so that Everyone understands what their job is and what the opportunities are, I think are important. I'm, we're also committed to making sure that people have the knowledge and skills they need to do what we're asking them to do. Because we set very high expectations, and I think that's important. Um, we expect people not just to work hard, but to work in aid of our mission and, and our goals. Mm -hmm. 
that they understand that and that they're constantly looking at and assessing what they're doing to say, how could this be better? Whether I work in circulation or I'm in cataloging or I'm in reference or I'm doing story times, how can we make this better? And who better than the people who actually do the work to do that sort of thing? But it's encouraging people to think that way and to think differently. Um, we have two full-time trainers on staff. Mm-hmm. And they do the uh, the training for both our staff and for the public. So we have, a, I think, a big commitment to staff development. We also give our staff opportunities. We, at any given time, we have a lot of cross-departmental teams and committees that are working. And we encourage people or invite them to to participate in those. And they can be on a, usually they're on developing a service, working on programming, Several years ago, we kind of completely revamped our collections into what we call neighborhoods to make them more browsable. Mm -hmm. And so we had a very large cross-departmental team that worked on that to really to move to operationalize that, you know, because it starts with a great idea. But then how do you make that actually work? Because the goal ultimately was is we wanted people to be able to walk into the library. And if they didn't use the online catalog, which research shows in many cases, they don't, Mm -hmm. um, even though we spend a lot of time and money on it, or they never talked to a staff member, they could still come in here and find what they needed. Because the reality is, most people don't talk to staff. It's, I know it seems like we're busy. I was a reference librarian for a long time, and we are. But if you look at the total number of people who come in your library versus the ones that actually ask for assistance. The percentage you know, is pretty it's, low. It's, yeah, it, it, it's not where we would want it to be. So what's always what always bugged me was how many people walk out of here not getting what they wanted or not even being able to figure out what it is they actually wanted because they couldn't really articulate it. And it makes a lot of sense. You know, mm-hmm. part of what something that I always preach here is engagement. Um, mm-hmm. We have a new, fairly new makerspace, and we have staffing. Oh, cool. We have staffing now where we didn't have before. But we noticed when there was no staff in there, people would wander in, look around, and leave. But when there yeah. was somebody in there, the people, a, pers- a patron would walk around and look, and all it takes is a hi. Do you, would you like me to explain what we're doing here? And that's when the buy-in begins. That's when you get the engagement. And next thing you know, they're walking out either with the forms to try to find out what they're going to make. The spark has been lit. Mm-hmm. Or they've already figured it out and they know what they're going to make. And we have a print request or an engraving request or a, a scanning request or some type of request to do something. So without that engagement, it's almost as though the full reference job is not being done. That whole notion of building and they will come actually does not serve libraries well. I think that especially with things like Maker, 3D printers, those sorts of things, we have to program for them, right? We have to create a context in which people can understand why they would care about it. Mm -hmm. There's always going to be a few early adopters that say, oh, my God, the library got a 3D printer. And that's maybe a handful of people, right? Right. Yeah, I'm sure. going to go in and use it. And then, then, and then there's everybody else. And so how do you begin? Part of our job is to kind of like lower the barriers, right? Mm-hmm. Kind of like a zero entry pool. We're going to make this so easy and so non-threatening that the least techie person in the world is going to think, I kind of want to know about that 3D printer. Tell me about it. Show me what it does. And that's that engagement that you're talking about. It really starts there. And the, the thing I love about how we've progressed over time is, I mean, 
when I first started in libraries, the role of librarians was pretty passive. You know, we sat at a desk. We were the empresses of information. You know, if you got to me, you got great help. You got great reference service, but you had to bring the question to me. We instituted a roving model a couple of years ago. We got rid of our reference desk. We still have some public service desk, but we're asking our staff. I managed the circulation department for four years, and during that time, I learned that shelvers get asked a lot of questions. They probably yes. get asked a lot more. Custodians and shelvers get asked a lot of questions. And so, first of all, it's really important to hire great people for those positions and train them to be good ambassadors for the library and to know when they've hit their limits about how to help people, right? And, right. and when to take them to a, to a librarian or a, a library associate and say, this person can help you with that. But it's, it's, it's also really important that we not wait for the question anymore. That's true. Um, because if we're really about not just handing people somebody a book, but about having helping them have a great learning experience, then we've got to initiate contact in a lot of instances. And that's really kind of in the, more in the nature of sales, which a lot of librarians are not comfortable with. It's much easier to be approached, right? To be in a, the position of authority and power behind a desk where I'm the expert, I know all the resources, I'm gonna help you. Instead of partnering with someone to say, we're gonna work on this together. Correct. But that's, I think, how the role of frontline librarians really needs to shift. Absolutely, because you're not serving unless you're reaching out. You can't just sit there and, and be passive. You have to be active and engage right. the community. It, it, sometimes it's as much as, as you're walking past the patron, you just smile and say hello. Absolutely, it's that sense of hospitality too, of, you know, I always felt like any library I'm in should be the friendliest place in town, that when people walk in here, it's warm, it's inviting, and it feels like, oh, they're glad I, I'm here. They're glad I came in today. You know, and I think a, a lot of our staff are absolutely like that. You know, we've got between two and 3,000 people a day walk in our doors. And, and a lot of them are, are regulars, right? But some of them are, are brand new. And so people never forget that first impression, right? That's true. I mean, you could try to make up for it later, but if they don't feel welcome, if they don't feel like they didn't make me feel stupid, they made me feel like I was important and I got what I needed. If you can do that, how often do people have that experience in a public setting? I, when I, you know, when I'm out shopping and stuff, I'm all, if I'm at Target or if I'm at a department store and a restaurant, I'm always watching customer service. You know, what are they doing well? Mm -hmm. You know, and you just don't see a lot of great customer service. So when you do see it, it kind of gets your attention, right? And you're so grateful for it because it doesn't happen that often, but it should happen in libraries all the time. And you're right about that, too. And it's, it's, it's almost a sad commentary. When you see something, a good customer service, you're taking, you know, you notice it as opposed to seeing a person that's not giving good customer service, where now it's become the norm to not have good customer service. Yeah, or no customer service. I mean, I, the notion of self-service always kind of amuses me a bit, right? So, you know, you, you said that you, you put your makerspace out, like, with probably a 3D printer, Yes, we have and some other equipment, right? Yeah. And then just said, "Well, come and get it," you know. But I mean, and and you realize very quickly that was not necessary. That created a barrier for people, right? They weren't quite sure what to do with that. And so, part of part of your role is facilitating that Correct. 
getting getting to know that equipment and figuring out, is this for me? And I, I think that, you know, when I talked about facilitation, but part of it is that engagement that you're talking about. It's making connections for people, connecting. We've always done that with information, but it's, it's an aid now of learning. Mm-hmm. It's not just about handing somebody something. That's right. Or giving them the answer. Because giving them the answer is not necessarily, in the short term, yeah, if that's what they need, but it's also about expanding their learning experiences. That's very true. We're part of the experience. We're not the answer to the, to the question. Right. Exactly. Yeah. We're only a stepping stone along the way for that person to get to their ultimate goal. We, we've been doing some work with the Kettering Foundation, uh, which really focuses on democracy and action in communities. And I'm trying to actually change the way I talk and think about how we work with our customers now um, and our fellow residents. I'm trying to get rid of that notion of library as service provider and begin to think of us as we're an important institution in our community and we have resources and we have structure, but we're all neighbors and we're all residents. And so it's not so much about serving as it is working together. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. It absolutely does. But that's kind of a leap. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a different way of thinking because if we're going to work that way, think about it. The traditional way of developing services in libraries, right? We, okay, we do our community survey or we do, a, we do Survey Monkey, or we, we do something to get feedback from people. Mm-hmm. And then we go away. We take that information away and we massage it and we look at it and we come up with a great idea and then we put it out there and we say, well, here it is. Use it. Right. Don't you like, don't you like this new thing we did? Because you said this is what you wanted. But if we're really working with our community, we actually work with them to develop the ideas for the services and the collections and the programs. And we don't. Makes sense. Yeah. Except it's it's harder to it's easy to talk about it's not so easy to do because you have to have the ideas too it's mm-hmm. more than just build it and they will come build it come up with ideas engage the community see what they want and then have programming or some kind of I don't want to say event but some something based around it where now it's not the 3D printer that they're coming for they're coming for the experience so they can do A B C. Yeah. And we're just the facilitators using the equipment to bring them to that final result. And it's it's more like I think libraries need to start using more like of a hackathon model Mm -hmm. instead of the more traditional, here's a new service that we just rolled out based on our survey. So this is actually a great way to transition into something that your library has been doing that's an old concept that's been made new again with uh, your bookmobiles. And, uh-huh. with your, and with your newest in Denver, with the, what is it, the Learn and Play Bus? I think. Yeah, it's the called. Learn and Play Bus. Uh-huh. And, you know, tell tell us about that and your connection to Dolly Parton, which I found very interesting in your keynote. Well, we have community impact goals that make up our a strategic plan. So the first one is every child will be ready for kindergarten. And um, I, I was very, very impressed by this, by the way. Well, thank you. But and, and we don't own that goal exclusively, but we feel that we're a major stakeholder, mm-hmm. and we have we uh, we should be uh, a community leader in helping make this happen. So we we kind of approached it from opposite ends of a spectrum. The learn and play bus was very much about 
one-on-one building relationships with children and families in a very personal way. Uh, so we, we're pretty good at vehicle-based services. We don't have branches. So our bookmobiles are our branches, we, and we run a number of them. They do about 15% of our total circulation. So, you know, they, they're heavily used. But this, we didn't want to do another bookmobile. We can spec those in our sleep. What we wanted to create was a vehicle-based service that was, in effect, an early childhood mobile classroom uh, where we would invite you know, parents, caretakers, and children on board to and work with them in that setting, along with our partners, parents as teachers, healthcare experts, child behaviorists, you know, I mean, all of us who in effect work with children and families, and all of us have different areas of expertise to take a very holistic approach to helping children be ready, be kindergarten ready, mm-hmm. because it's more than literacy, right? It can be vision. It can be speech development. It can be the fact that this family has very few resources. It could be a very young parent who really doesn't know how to parent. So many things factor in to ensuring that a child has all the, it could be the fact that the child isn't getting good nutrition. So it, it there are so many things that factor into a child from birth to five getting what he or she needs to be ready, to be school ready. And so we gathered a group of 10 community partners and we hand selected them because we felt it was Shawnee County Health Agency, parents as teachers, some principals from some of the elementary schools in town, an organization called Child Care Aware that uh, does a lot of education and consulting for child care providers the uh, head of children's services for our local rescue mission that deals with homeless families, you know, so, and there were several others like that. And so we said to them, I said to them, I said, here's what I'm going to ask of you. I'm taking money off the table. We will fundraise for this vehicle. It's going to be about Mm $400,000. The library's going to buy it. We'll own it. We'll run it. What we want from you are two things. We want your expertise in planning this. And then we want a commitment from you that you will work with us side by side on the bus, extending your reach, but also lending your services and your skills to making sure that we're dealing with all aspects of this child's life to make sure they're kindergarten ready. Right. And that's, and really, that's, what, that's impressive, too. Oh, well, thank you. But it, and then Marie Pica, who's our public services director, was the, the project coordinator and the facilitator for that process. And... I have to say she did a phenomenal job. Uh, She is a great leader and a great facilitator. She identified exactly the right people from the right agencies. And then from that group, actually, we ended up hiring our our early childhood project coordinator, Sherry Hess, who was formerly head of parents as teachers for one of our school districts. Mm -hmm. And the really cool thing about that was Sherry already had relationships with many families in, in the areas of our community that are most at risk. And that's, that's what we targeted first. So it hit the road in December. Mm-hmm. It's all, we're, we're already seeing lots of families, lots of caregivers bringing their children. And we're already beginning to see parents are reporting, oh, my child is talking more clearly. Or I, I, I thought my child had behavior problems, but I see now he's normal. You know, it just all those things that, that parents are concerned about. And also helping parents learn understand how to play with their children, how to talk to their children. I know this sounds odd, but in this country, nobody's born knowing how to be a parent, right? That's right. 
they don't come with owner's manuals. And it, this, this notion that oh, just because a, a woman is a mother, she intuitively knows how to take care of a baby or the fact that you need to talk to your child from birth, mm-hmm. you know, that you need to read to your child from birth, but that, you know, there's that 30 million word gap, if you're familiar with that concept. Yeah, I've heard of that before, yeah. Yeah, um, and so especially children from lower-income families, because those families tend to be very stressed, it's not that those parents don't love their children and don't care for them, but they're they're operating at a subsistence level, at a survival level. And so in those situations, it's really hard for parents, and they may be working two jobs. And so it's very hard for them to find the time to have quality interactions with their children. You know, and so what the kids are hearing is, eat your dinner, you know, go take a bath, get ready for bed. They're hearing the stress. They're not hearing real parents. Stop that. You know, instead of, oh, what color is that apple? You know, if you're at the grocery store, you know, those sorts of things. And so it's supporting them so that and, and letting them know they can be good parents. Because unfortunately, in our country, especially if you're poor, people are all too willing to tell you what your limitations are. And the fact that you're not doing a good job in a variety of areas. They're not so quick to tell you that, you're, that we know you're trying hard and you deserve to, to have some support and some help. You know. Yeah, sure. So there's that. So that's, that's one end of the spectrum, which is very, it's, it's not on a large scale. And it never will be. But it's intended to reach the most vulnerable in our community. On the other side is Dolly, Parton, Dolly Parton's Imagination Library. Mm-hmm. It's a book giveaway program. Uh, the community fundraises. It's $25 per child per year. Mm-hmm. That covers the cost of 12 books that the child receives one a month, mm-hmm. plus the postage. They are age-appropriate books, depending on the age of the child. All children in the community, there's no means testing for this, are eligible to be registered, and there is no charge to the family. So we did this in partnership with the United Way of Greater Topeka. Uh, and then we're bringing in some other partners as well that we're asking to contribute funding, but also to adopt early childhood literacy as a strategic initiative for their organization as well. Um, I will tell you, we started, uh, register, we, we fundraised for two years. I was not willing to greenlight the project until we had 250000 in the bank. We actually started closer to 270000 Okay. So we, and we're, We've gotten more since then, but we um, we started registration three weeks ago. We already have 1,700 children registered. So I will tell you this, Dolly Parton Foundation has a formula they use to tell you where you should be with your registration based on your population. Mm-hmm. So we're now in month where we, three weeks into the program, we're where they told us we would be at seven months. Wow. Yeah. And the really wonderful thing about this program is, first of all, its efficacy has been tested. You know, there are whole states that are doing this now, including Tennessee, which is Dolly Parton's home state. Mm -hmm. So there's been some research done around this in terms of, you know, improvements in children's cognitive development, uh, reading readiness, language development, all of those things. If you talk to principals and kindergarten teachers now, they're telling us, we can tell the kids who have been in the Dolly Parton program and have had a home library and those that haven't. That's the impressive. Reality, it, it is. And, and, and the thing is, it's totally scalable. You're only limited by the amount of money you can raise to support it. So in any given year, we have 12,500 children in our community between birth and five. Mm-hmm. And so our goal is to have 100%. 
Dolly Parton Foundation says you tend to max out at about 60%, and they projected that it would take five years to get there. We projected, because of our community and because people knew about this program, that we would be there in less than three years. And I think we may even be there in two. But we're going to really aggressively pursue this because what other program can you think of? Certainly not story times or some of the other things we do that can reach, has the potential to reach every child. That's true. Yeah. There's no other type of programming we do that has the potential to do that. It's amazing. It is. It's, it's really exciting. Um, and the only thing that kills this program is the failure to find sustained funding with multiple partners because it's expensive. Oh, absolutely. Over time. Yeah, you know, sure. I mean, for our community, it's doable. But you start talking about, like, big metropolitan areas like yours, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a big undertaking. So you need a lot of partners committed. But, you know, if you look at what, it, you know, 50% of the children, young children in this country, regardless of income or education level, are not read to regularly. Librarians don't really look at stats like that a lot, but we should. Mm-hmm. Because I think it would change the way we think about all of the preschool programming that we do. Because so much of it doesn't reach many kids at all. The kids it does reach get really quality learning experiences. But we're just not reaching enough people. And that's, that seems to be the, the problem no matter where, whether you're in New York or Kansas or anyplace else. You always see what percentage of the population is really coming in and using the services. Right. And that's always been kind of the discouraging part of the profession. Or even not coming in. I mean, how many come in through your digital branch, your you know your website, whatever whatever you call it? We know we have a lot of library users now for whom the digital branch, in our case, that's the library, right? right. They check out eBooks. You know, they can participate in some programming. They can register for summer reading. You know, I mean, they can book a meeting room. They can do all kinds of things online, or they're bookmobile users. But the reality is, I I think. We can't assume that I, I have said that two things are informing and will inform the way we work now and in the future. Uh, one is that we will have more stuff out of our building than we've ever had before mm-hmm. on any given day. And the second is that we will do everything in partnership. Makes sense. Because you can leverage your resources. You can draw on expertise you don't have. They have constituencies and networks we don't have. And... There, and, and you can scale in ways you can't by yourself. And, and that really is important to have partnerships, mm-hmm. um, whether it's on the smallest level or, or on a larger level. Partnerships with the community make a difference. Here Absolutely. at SHM, in our library, we do a thing, and we're trying to do it more often now. Or for During library week, we went through all the local businesses and said, would you be willing to give a discount, whether it's 5%, 2%, if someone showed their library card? Mm-hmm. And it was an overwhelming success. And That's we, wonderful. At first, we thought, well, we don't want to take money out of the business's pockets. So they were kind of reluctant. And I think we had something like 25 businesses or something like that that participated. And some of them continued it on their own past Library Week. Awesome. And they were appreciative, appreciative and said, when are you doing it again? Because it brought business up 5%, 10%, 15%. That is awesome. So, and it's, 
it, it wasn't partnering with the huge companies. It was, you know, the local pizzeria, the local bagel shop, the mom and pop nail place and, and places like that. Which in most communities, that's the majority of your businesses exactly. are the small businesses. Sure. They're kind of the backbone of the community. Yeah. And so you really are, I mean, really, I mean, to me, you pitch this as economic development, right? Yeah. And it's one hand washing the other. Oh, yeah. Uh, and one thing I always talk about in, in the podcast, and if Bob were here, he would bring up the same thing. But where's Bob? We don't know where he is. <laughs> Um, I want to meet this Bob. <laughs> you want to meet Bob. Everybody wants to meet Bob. It's interesting because libraries are community members. And the one thing that's unique about libraries, well, there's many things that are unique about libraries. But mm-hmm. the one thing that we don't have is profit driving what we do. And I always bring this up in the podcast because sometimes librarians lose sight of some librarians are so lost in being in library land and others came from another place and don't understand why there isn't a profit-driven model behind it. But being a not-for-profit changes, at least I think, what we do as a profession because now it's not commission-based. It's not sales-based. It's not performance-based. I mean, it is to a certain degree when you have your review, but it's not what is funding or providing the money that you make on a daily basis. You're doing this job because you want to truly help people. Now, whether that is helping a child find a board book or teaching children to code or having a virtual reality day for teens or having yoga for seniors or whatever you're Mm -hmm. doing in your library, you're an essential part of that community. And making partnerships with some of the local businesses and groups like that, even Chambers of Commerce or Kiwanis or or Lions Club or whatever the organizations are, making those connections helps the community because those people are members of your community. And what do they do? They go back and they tell their friends and they tell their neighbors. The next thing you know, you've now done some kind of like crowdsourcing without really having done much but just network a little bit. And at the end of the day, a lot of this is networking. It is. I actually, I, it's funny because I, I serve on the board of a, it's a co-work makerspace hybrid that really is becoming kind of an incubator for entrepreneurs. Uh, it's called 712 Innovations. It's, it's, an, it's in our downtown, which is going through a big kind of renewal mm-hmm. right now. And 712 is, we're, we're one of the partners, and we actually have embedded librarians who work down there mm-hmm. to support the, the folks, the entrepreneurs that are developing their businesses, helping them with research, and also helping on the maker side as well. And the maker side has been really cool because some people are using the, the maker equipment to like develop prototypes, yes. you know, and those kinds of things, it, much more economically than if you had to have them manufactured. Well, isn't you it know? cool how the engineers mm-hmm. come out of the woodwork? Yeah, yeah. It really is fun, isn't it? Oh, yeah, it It is. But, you know, it's always an opportunity for me to make the case that that the public library is actually driving, is is part of the economic development engine. We do that by actually supporting entrepreneurs. We have a business librarian who has her MLS and an MBA. You know, and that's not unusual in public libraries to have that level of expertise and has been a small business owner herself. We have very strong relationships with all of the other kind of the entrepreneurial ecosystem. We work very closely with the chamber. We work very closely with its economic development arm, Go Topeka. And so and and so we're an entry point for entrepreneurs, but we're also sometimes we're their office. We have the resources here, but a lot of them who can't even may not even necessarily want to rent co-work space at this point. They're only working out of their home, but they need to meet with a client, you know, or they need to set up, they need to Skype with somebody. They come here and they use our facilities for or that. Or just send a fax. 
Mm-hmm. Faxing is isn't it amazing how popular faxing still is? Isn't it crazy? We went to we went to self service no charge faxing because we figured it's cheaper just to let people do it rather than having to have staff and or mediation and all that kind of thing. It is amazing how many people still use that. We found that interesting too. It seems that more people fax than not. And experiences I've had with other libraries in the past is when you offer it for free and self serve, it becomes a little troublesome. Really? Yeah, because so many people want to get that fax through. And sometimes the people that they're faxing to have machines that are older than, I don't know, maybe they're still working on 4,800 baud or something. (laughs) And you have to wait for it to go through, and then they don't have the right number, and then they thought they had the right number. and you know, now, so, I, haven't, I haven't really heard a, a, a lot about that. We also provide notary service here. Mm-hmm, yeah, we have that here at our library. And, well. and, and I, well, you know, we find that, are you doing passports? No, we're not doing passports, but we, um, you know, if somebody has a document they need notarized, we'll, we'll take care of that. Yeah. Now that we find is, we actually have, uh, we were providing that service out of the administrative office. My assistant and there were a couple of other staff members up here were doing it. But we're generally, they're generally not here in the evening. So now we have some library assistants in circulation doing that because we have somebody here all the time. That can be kind of overwhelming um, because the number of people that need notary service is huge. And we don't charge for it. Uh, Yeah, we don't either. Um, in New York State, I don't know what, how it is over there in Kansas, but in New York State, there's a statutory $2 fee that we can, is a discretionary charge. Uh-huh. Uh, we don't do it because it's a public service. Yeah. Well, and honestly, collecting it and tracking it is actually costs you more than collecting it. Exactly, because so. you have to account for it all, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that is kind of a hassle. So switching gears for a second, mm-hmm. I'm a bit of a tech guy, and we love to talk about technology here on the Library Pros. So. Tell us what you have. Now, I, we, you've already shown us the depth and breadth of, of your knowledge uh, with technology, but tell us what you have over there at Shoney Topeka. And let's talk makerspace. If you have a makerspace, uh, what kind of technology do you have? And tell us if you lend technology, because that seems to be a new kind of thing. I mean, more than just e-readers. We lend cake pans. That's kind of a technology. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. It's, it's a baking technology. Yeah, we actually we have lend- some libraries out here that, that will lend fishing poles. So if they want to go fishing yeah, in the ocean. Yeah, it's kind of what that we've talked about doing tools and some other things. I mean, I figure if you can barcode it, you can, you know, you can It's that lend realia, it. you know, reality yeah, is yeah, an interesting yeah. animal when it comes to the people who work back in tech. So, so just kind of infrastructure stuff. We're, we have a Polaris ILS. About three years ago, we converted to RFID. And that was in aid of actually converting, trying to get to 100% self-check um, because we hire great people uh, and we really wanted to start reallocating some of our talented circulation staff to more meaningful customer interactions on the mm-hmm. floor. As, as, as we're deploying more of our librarians out of the building, we're asking our, our, some of our other staff members to begin to step up into those customer service roles, which they're perfectly capable of doing. Mm-hmm. Because quite honestly, the question we're always asking is, what do you need a master's in library science for? That's do you true. need it to tell people where the bathroom is? Do you need it to help people look up something in the catalog well, that and actually, find it on the shelf? Th- that brings up a good question. Here, depending on which library you're, you're in, it's a civil service library, so you have to be, you know, follow civil service rules. Is that the way it is over at, over at your place? No, no. Uh, no civil service, no unions. Okay. So we, ha- we, we have a classification system, mm-hmm. and we are very careful about making sure that our job descriptions are accurate and that we aren't unreasonable 
and the expectations we set for staff, but we also give staff opportunities. And and the reality is, again, it's what distinguishes a librarian from, say, another classification, say, a library paraprofessional who also works. If they're working side by side, what's the difference? And so we happen to think that our librarians should be expert researchers, but they should also be community leaders. So they have a depth and breadth of knowledge of the community, they're sitting at other tables, working on uh, community health issues like poverty, working on education and literacy, uh, serving on advisory committees for the school districts as they're developing new career centers, you know, all those kinds of things where, you know, as I say, if you've got a librarian at the table in our town, your process is better and your product's going to be better. Critical thinking. Mm-hmm. We're information professionals. We know how to ask good questions. In our case, we're trained facilitators, so we can actually help the group work more effectively. Mm-hmm. And we have resources to bring on some of these things as well. Absolutely, so, and it, sure. It's also empowering staff. You know, we're not there to do a bookmark, right, or to do a book list necessarily. That's, we're there to offer real expertise. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Um, sure. Mm-hmm. So tell me about how your staff deals with the technology. And- we just finished a big hyperconvergence project, you know, where moving more stuff to the cloud, but also it's been interesting watching that transition because for so long, so much was hardware driven mm-hmm. and now it's more software driven. And, you know, the thing is, if you look at our computer room now, what used to be filled with servers and disk arrays is really, and, and we had spent probably $100,000 on a new air conditioning system 10 years ago. We don't need any of that now because all that, you know, we don't have a lot of heat generating things anymore. You want lots of virtual servers, right? Yeah, yeah. 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 That seems yeah. to be the new and trend, it, everything cloud-based. And again, yeah, that hyperconvergence, which I think is kind of a marketing term, but anyway, right. conveying that, you know, that, that hybrid, which is much heavier on the software side than on the hardware side these days. So, and, and then, you know, I mean, we're using... We're using devices. We have a 3D printer. A lot of staff are, are trained to use it and to assist people in using it. We have a digital media lab, which is Max, that has a lot of specialized software for music, photo and video production, you know, those sorts of things. Sure. Things like laser cutters and those sorts of things. I, I basically say anything that can cut your finger off is at 712 Innovations, you know, we're a partner. <laughs> and we actually have... Day passes. It's a it's a member organization, but we uh, buy a certain number of day passes. Mm-hmm. So with your library card, you can check out a visit to Seven Twelve mm-hmm. and take a class in learning how to do the laser cutter or whatever you want to do. Well, you know, it's you funny know, you right? mentioned Seven Twelve. Seven Twelve is its own independent makerspace, right? It is. So uh, when we were at computers and libraries, I don't know if you had a chance to see uh, the program on Do Space. I didn't, which I was sad about. I have to say. And it's not just because I'm trying to get her on the podcast. It was one of the best presentations at CIL. And that's Omaha, right? That's Omaha, yeah. Yeah. I was on a panel with her later for the Leadership Summit, and I was most impressed with her. Yeah, she really had it all together. And mm-hmm. what what I find interesting, um, and just because, for, for lack of a better way to describe it, we're on an island. It's a big island, but we're on an yeah. island. And we don't have that kind of thing here so you know the libraries are taking that role with regard to and now we're not doing cnc machines or you know heavy carpentry and things like that i mean we're introducing mm-hmm. hand tools to children which is a new concept oh that's cool but once you go 
upstate New York, and I'm saying, you know, way upstate, like Canadian border, Adirondacks, mm-hmm. western New York, Buffalo. Very rural, yeah. Um, they're, we're all part of New York State. We're all part of what's called NILA, the New, New York mm-hmm. Library Association. And there's one of the roundtables. It's a, a making steam roundtable. And we went, uh, one of my colleagues from another library and I went up to one of the conferences up at the state capitol in Albany. And we were amazed at what they were doing up there. Having full woodworking shops and drill presses mm-hmm. and, and all these things. Uh, one, I think they were doing arc welding and, and all these other things. And some were, were city, I think the city of Troy upstate had their own makerspace and there were some other independent makerspaces and some were, you know, done by libraries. And my colleague and I looked at each other and thought, you kidding me? We couldn't get this past the lawyers. There's too much liability involved. Well, it's kind of interesting to me. I mean, a lot of New York is very rural. I'm working on a community broadband planning process right now. And we just got some money from our local uh, economic development organization to hire a telecommunications consultant to work with us on this, right? And so we were calling references for this company, and we talked to a guy who operates out of Manhattan, but he's doing this huge half-a-billion-dollar broadband for rural New York, and it's almost all public monies. There's some private monies going into it. And he, he, had, the, he had that accent. It was... He was hilarious. He talked to Bile a minute. He was a great guy, though. He was so, <laughs> so generous with his time and what he knew. And, and he thought we were kind of funny, you know, because we talk funny. Um, <laughs> I think we talked all, about this but, before the mics came on, right? <laughs> that's right. But we all, but we all talked about, uh, we, we all were focused on broadband and the importance of high-speed internet for our communities, you know, just for education and uh, access and entertainment and healthcare and all those kinds of things. And what struck me about that conversation was the great diversity in, in New York State. You know, I mean, we're literally, you have areas of your state where you have no providers, none. My mother lives in one of those areas in the Adirondacks. Yeah, which is, I know, a beautiful part of the state. But it's a state park preserve. There's no high-speed internet unless you have satellite. Wow, and we know that's not good. So it's it's a very difficult thing to do. And a lot of the infrastructure up there is actually pretty ancient. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. But here's what I'll tell you. Here, in just in my county, mm-hmm. okay, and one of the reasons why I've been focused on broadband for a very long time, it's about access for our library customers. But we're investing so much now in digital content, and yet there are fewer opportunities. We have a digital divide here, like a lot of communities do, right? Sure. So we're out where I live, okay, so... In my building, I have a I have a gigabit pipe, right? There's a gigabit connection for the library. We're, we're doing pretty well. Sure. And we have the resources to increase bandwidth as we need it. Sure. And we have providers that can do that for us. Mm-hmm. I live 26 miles away from the library in a gravel road. I have an antenna on my roof for microwave access. I pay $70 a month for what is supposed to be five megs down, one up. I have never gotten more than 2.5 megs down, which means I can't even stream Netflix. Wow. You know, and so there's all kinds of disparities with broadband. Sure. All over this country. Mm-hmm. You know, the assumption that everybody has it is absolutely incorrect. That's right. So, and, and it should be an issue that libraries and librarians care about because of these investments we're making and, di- and the assumptions we're making about digital content kind of leveling the playing field for people. It only does that if they can access it. That's right. It's Again, it's that dissemination of information. If you can't get access to the information, what good is the information? You kind of left right. left out in the cold. 
Mm-hmm. You know, if you don't have are, a computer, if you don't have an internet connection, mm-hmm. you know, all those things. And we do, I mean, we have public access computers, but we also have to engage in larger scale community issues that have an impact on our ability to keep that le- playing field level and to really work towards eliminating that digital divide. It's yes. very real. It's economic. It's geographic. It also prevents people from using their library. It's true. Do you have you explored? Because they a few of the libraries here in Suffolk County uh, mm-hmm. gotten wireless hotspots. In terms of checking those out, yeah, we have. But I guess I I've looked at that and I thought, okay, that's not a long term solution. That's my concern about it. Right. You know, what we're working on is it, it's a community based plan. It's not just a library solution. I decided a long time ago that libraries can't silo on this issue, not even as a library community in your state. We have to work with our local communities so that our school districts, our city, our county, private sector leadership, healthcare, we have to bring all those folks to the table because they're all stakeholders and work on this together. Mm-hmm. Because then we're addressing all the things that, that high-speed internet, that real broadband can actually do. You know, oh, it's not it's it's not just a library issue. And it, it think about how you're you're perceived. Communities like Google Fiber Project, first Google, Google Fiber Project was in Kansas City, 50 miles down the road. Mm-hmm. Right. That completely changed the image of Kansas City. I think Kansas City already had a great rep, but Kansas City became it was seen and is seen now as a very progressive place that is supportive of and welcomes entrepreneurs. People want to move there. It's progressive. You know, it's high tech. Mm-hmm. It's it's looking towards the future. And there are so many smaller communities that if they're not willing to make these investments are just going to get left behind. School kids are getting left behind because if, you know, so much kids are expected to do a lot of schools have, you know, one-to-one programs where they're handing out Chromebooks and iPads. They're expected to work from home. But if they don't have broadband at home, they can't do it. Then it's just a standalone so, computer, and if there's nothing on a Chromebook, because Chromebook's just a browser, what you know? Right, and 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 there's this whole career, this whole talent pipeline that we have to be concerned about: young people leaving their communities yes. because the opportunities aren't there. Yep. You know, it's so, a huge problem here. Actually, mm-hmm. it's a huge problem. Is it really? Yeah. It's and it's it. I imagine for different reasons, but it's, it's economic. It's, it, it's, it's happening economic. here too. Yeah. For us, it's it's. Some of it's, uh, 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 but we have, you know, we have University of Kansas and K-State University that are literally just on opposite sides of us. Great educational institutions, public institutions, get a great education there, and then uh, they're heading out your way. You know, we have a lot of people that that get their degrees and then head for the coasts or Chicago, you know, someplace like that. Um, Some of our biggest employers are having difficulty getting qualified workers, like software developers. We have some... um, some of, and we're a community that still makes things. So Frito Lay's here. Frito Lay makes sun chips here. Mars makes uh, Twix here. Wow, and, that's and, really and, cool. I didn't know that. And M and M's, yeah. Goodyear Tire makes big tires here. But the thing is, they're kind of fighting over. You know, a lot of them use robotics, and so they end up raiding each other's software development departments for people who can write the code to manage the robots. And then having somebody on scene in case something goes wrong. Mm-hmm. 
And yeah. truck drivers are another thing. There's a shortage of truck drivers because everybody thinks that we're going to have self-driving trucks. I don't see that happening real no, soon. No, that's not happening. So shifting gears for a sec, no yeah. pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> We've kind of wandered far afield. Yeah, we kind of we kind of digressed a little, right? So what I'd love to do is take a short break because we have our now infamous top 10 list of questions or what we like to call the 032 list. It's the Dewey oh. number for top 10 lists. And we ask every person who comes on our podcast these 10 or so questions. And we have to give a big thank you to Melanie Cardone from the Longwood Public Library for the idea for the name because we went about six episodes and not have a name for it. So <laughs> she, she came up with it. So again, Melanie Cardone gets the credit. And if you've listened to uh, the podcast in, in, the la- in the past, you know that uh, this is something we ask all our guests. So uh, we'll be back in just a moment. Take a short break. Hi, and we're back talking with Gina Millsap of the Topeka and Shawnee County Public Library, who's going to be our next participant on the 032 list. So before we, we start with the questions, we have to give proper credit to the website Literary Hub, which is the inspiration for this top 10 list. Check them out. They do a lot of great things for libraries, a lot of great stories. Their website is lithub.com. They're also on Twitter and Facebook. See what they, uh, they have out there by right way of stories. Uh, because they do a lot of great things for libraries. Thank you, Literary Hub. So, first question. What did you want to be when you were a child? A paleontologist. I still kind of want to be a paleontologist. (laughs) (laughs) What was your first memory of her library, and who brought you to the library for the first time? As she rubs her forehead thinking. Yeah, you know, (laughs) the thing is, I mean, I, I probably should remember earlier than this, but when I, what I remember, you know, we moved a lot. I told you that. When I was in probably, it was early grade school, I remember going to a library, and it was the first time I got to go on to the library on my own, and it was probably in Fairfax, Virginia, and I got to, to ride my bike to the library, and I remember there was a children's section, 
And then I went to the adult section and I checked out Earl Stanley Gardner Perry Mason Mysteries. <laughs> that's great. So I, that's the one that sticks in my head. So when did you decide to work in a library? And we covered this before a little bit. Right. Yeah, and, and if it wasn't your first career path, you know, because most of us, we're, we, I call ourselves the Island of Misfit Toys, not many people go into this wanting to be a librarian from the word go. You said you were in, you, you studied biology and chemistry and life sciences yeah. and things like that? By the time I was um, a, a junior, like, junior, senior in college, I knew. I, I took intro to library science. You know, I told you I walked out of my genetics class. I dropped that class, signed up for uh, intro to library science, got my first part-time job in a library after I did a practicum in one, and that was it for me. So that all happened my junior year of college. Okay, this is one of my favorite questions. Who's your favorite fictional librarian? Fictional librarian? It doesn't have to be book, right? No, no, it could be TV, movies. So it's uh, Giles on Buffy. Ah, okay, we've had that answer before. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I have to say, okay, that, I have two. Catherine Hepburn and Dusset. That's a good one. That's a great one. I loved her in that. And she was just, she was such a strong woman and a librarian. So what would you be doing if you were not working in a library? Oh, you know, I'm, I mean, actually, I think I've often thought I, I could be happy doing lots of things. What would I be doing? You know what? I might be a city manager. There's something very compelling about managing a big organization that has like 20 different core businesses. That, that really interests me. When I was a city librarian, I loved working with public works and police and electric and water. And I found all of them very interesting. So what is your favorite section of the library? And this question is morphed over time. We initially meant it to mean like what section, you know, fiction, nonfiction, if not fiction, uh -huh. then, you know, was it history? Was it cooking or, but it's turned into, oh, I like the computer department. I like the maker space. I like, you know, so tell in any way, shape or form you see necessary, what's your favorite section of the library? So just in terms of collections, anything fiction. And I, lo I love the 800s. If you, you know, uh, including 822.33 Shakespeare. Uh, I took four semesters of Shakespeare in college. Um, English nerd. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I think in terms of that area, geographically, the area of the library I love is our kids' library, our children's area. Mm -hmm. We did a complete makeover a few years ago and included a three-dimensional, what we call learning scapes. And one of them is a T-Rex that you can see the bottom half of the T-Rex and he's crashing into the ceiling. And so we all call him the dinosaur butt. <laughs> and so any, anytime I give a tour, I make everyone have their picture taken right under the dinosaur's butt. I love our T-Rex, but I love the whole children's area. We have, it's just, I love watching kids and families interacting. Um, I just love watching kids. Like we have a saltwater aquarium that, you know, big one. And I just, we're trying to give children experiences, some of them that they might not have mm -hmm. living in the, you know, in Kansas. And just, I just love watching their little faces light up. So if you had infinite space and budget, what would you add to your library? I would have add a whole new learning center. I would also quadruple the size, the space that we now have for kids uh, to create a lot more space for grade school age kids. Just more people space generally. Actually, we're, we're right now, we're in year one of 
implementing our new facilities master plan and a lot of the, we're creating more collaborative spaces and we're just making more room for people because I think in a lot of I mean if we're on if we're all honest probably we could all cut our collections probably by 25 to 40 percent still have we might even increase circulation um, but it would make more room for people to really use their library and use it as a destination what do you love about your library um, I love here well this is kind of a place thing too but what I love is standing in our rotunda you know you walk in our doors and we have this huge rotunda with the soaring ceiling and watching literally people from all areas of our community walk through its doors and you always see someone you know That's but cool. and I and I love people seeing other people they know saying I didn't know you used the library you know or are you here for a meeting and but the fact that you know it's it's all races all ethnicities all areas of the community and they're all walking through our doors and i just i love that i will stand there sometimes and just watch people come in and out isn't it great it is I, it's wonderful i've always said the best endorsement for a library is a screaming child <laughs> i don't want to leave exactly yeah, yeah they're crying because they don't want to go exactly yeah Okay, so again, this is another favorite question. What's the weirdest thing, not necessarily worst thing, but weirdest thing that's ever happened to you in a library? Ugh. Oh, my gosh. Well, something, this was years ago, actually. It was when I was a reference librarian, and it was a reference question, actually. <laughs> Do you want me to say this? Go for it. I got, well, I got, I got, I, okay, I'm, I've been a reference librarian for a couple years, and, and, uh, you know, phone rings, I pick it up, and this is reference, may I help you? Um, and this guy says, well, I have a question. I'm not sure you can answer it. I said, oh, we're happy to try, you know. And, and the question was, is it possible for my wife to have sex with our great dame? <laughs> <laughs> I think you win. I think that's the best one so far, because nobody has had the guts to go... The, to that kind of question, to that kind of weird thing. That's great. Well, I mean, there may, in fact, have been other strange things, but the thing is, that just really stuck in my head. That's <laughs> great. Know, because I, and then I treated it like a reference question, you know. I mean, we had no books with that information, nothing that covered bestiality. <laughs> I was you know? just going to say, can you cite your sources? And, and so <laughs> what I ultimately ended up doing was referring him to a vet. That could be one of our best answers yet. Okay, so who is your favorite regular patron? Because we all have a favorite regular, right? I don't know if you see it that much now because you're more in a, on the administration uh, well, side. Well, actually, I did. Actually, there is a, a a woman named Marge Heaney. Marge is close to ninety now. Uh, who loves the library? And actually, her husband just passed away a couple weeks ago. Marge is a huge library advocate and and supporter. Is here frequently. Uh, and she might just come here for lunch, right, at the cafe. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, but she also she will go into the children's area, and she carries like, like little bags, and she'll just have a few bucks in them and stuff, and she'll just hand them to kids. She's one of the. She has she has business cards, and on them it says, Margaret Heaney, adventurous. But she's such a supporter of education. She buys season tickets to our local uh, civic theater. And she uses them to take children from families who've never had an opportunity to see live theater before. Wow. I mean, she 
will call and leave me voicemail and just say, I'm just calling to say I love you and you're doing a wonderful job. Our library is a jewel. So I have many wonderful people that I love who use this library, but Marge comes to mind first because I just adore her. So our last question, and I think the most important question is, what are people without library cards missing out on? They're missing the opportunity to, first of all, to discover whole worlds they never knew existed. But they're missing the opportunity to make their own lives better. And that could be just from having more joy, learning, sparking their curiosity, meeting people they would never meet anyplace else, interacting with wonderful librarians who really care about them mm -hmm. and are committed to helping them find that perfect story or maybe information, helping them apply for that job. They're, they're, it's kind of like a family that you actually chose, right? So it's, it's, it's missing the opportunity to expand your family and have experiences that even if you never get to travel, if you don't have a lot of money, if you don't have the opportunity to do, to, you know, experience music and theater and, and just, and all kinds of cultural, uh, you know, experiences, you know, your library can do that for you. Uh, and plus just connect you to people, you know, so that, I mean, loneliness, you know, is a, a, we're an antidote to loneliness, I think, too. There's, there are a lot of people in communities that are, that are just lonely. And I got to thank you for being on the podcast because, oh, I mean, when well, somebody reaches out through Twitter and you don't know who they are, you know, you kind of a shot in the dark, right? You know what? But the, I have never, I have never regretted saying yes to uh, a fellow librarian. Thank you. Well, we appreciate you being on. If, if Bob was here, uh, we would, yeah. I would say we, but I appreciate you coming on the, uh, the There podcast. was that movie, Where's Bob? Remember that? Yep. What about Bob? Yeah. Oh, what about Bob? That's what about right. Bob? Yeah. Yeah. yeah very, it's pretty funny, actually. Um, but well, no. Tell Bob, he missed a good time. <laughs> oh, don't worry. I'll let him know. <laughs> Thank you for being such a good sport, answering our questions and, oh, sure. and, and participating. Because, like I said before, I love when we hear from from colleagues from across the country. And, you know, it, it, it really makes a difference. And I think our, our listeners out there in library land really uh, appreciate it, too, because we have listeners from all over the country. Believe it or not, we have a following in Japan now. So, Oh, I believe it. It's, this is, I, I'm going to become a new fan. I'm going to start listening. I've got a 40-minute commute, you know, one way. And so right. I'm going to start tuning in. Yeah, take a listen to some of our stuff. It's pretty fun. I absolutely will. Great. So that's all the time we have for this edition of the podcast. If you have any questions or comments, please go to the contact us section of our website at thelibrarypros.com. We will also have notes and links from all of today's, all of our episodes that we've had in the past. And you can check us out on Twitter at, at the Library Pros and on Facebook at facebook.com slash librarypros. And don't forget to subscribe to our RSS feed, iTunes, Android, email, Google Play, and any other place you get podcast from. And remember, the opinions stated by the library pros and their guests are solely those of Chris and Bob, if Bob were here, and <laughs> are not those of the Sachem Public Library, the MS Clark Memorial Library, which is Bob's library, if he were here, or any other library. So we will see you next time. You've been listening to the Library Pros Podcast. The Library Pros are brought to you by Liquid Productions and by the Library Pros themselves. Mr. Christopher Farrow, Bob Johnson.
special thanks to Sage Public Library for providing space for this podcast. Until the next turn of the page, I'm your announcer, Paul Tungrash.